invite you to turn in your Bibles back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9 will be our, our focus this morning. Susan, Susan is always worried when I have a whole chapter for the text. <laughs> but I promise I will not uh, try to be extra long this, this morning, but rather will... Uh, try to help you see the, the, the way this chapter hangs together, really, as one piece. Chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10, you remember, are our historical narrative. And, and really, in many ways, this is the climax of the book. Uh, the Hebrews, Hebrew scriptures often don't have the climax at the end of a book, like we tend to do in, in our uh, in our English way of thinking. And, and I really think it's right here in our text today that we have the, the climax of the book. And, the, and I hope you'll see that as we, as we work through this. We, we noted when we began looking at the book of Leviticus that, that Leviticus is really an answer for a crisis, as it were, for a dilemma that ended the book of Exodus. Any drama begins with, with giving the reader or the viewer some, some conflict, some crisis, some problem to be resolved, that then the drama unfolds. And, and that's what happens at the end of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, we have the tabernacle erected, all its furnishings there, the, the incredibly beautiful tapestries hung, the the, the pure gold of the Ark of the Covenant in place, the, the bronze of the altar and, and, and uh, laver out in the courtyard, everything is ready. After months of preparation by skilled craftsmen and craftswomen, everything is ready. And then right there at the end of Exodus, we're told that the glory cloud of God's presence possibly something resembling that, that fiery cloud that descended on Mount Sinai, that glory cloud, as we may call it, fills the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And it can't be used to meet. Not even Moses can enter the meeting tent to worship God. Imagine if you came here to worship this morning and the doors are locked and nobody can get in. That, that's the sense that we have of a crisis there at the end of Exodus. And Leviticus is all about how access is granted into the presence of the Lord and worship is made possible. Now that crisis, of course, at the end of Exodus really encapsulates the crisis that first appears way back in Genesis, doesn't it? I mean, this is the problem of the human race from the time of the fall. Adam had been placed there in the, in the Garden of Eden, which was, in effect, a temple, a sanctuary, because he met with God there. And the Lord, his creator and God, told him, guard and serve this sanctuary. That's literally how we could interpret those words there. Guard it, 
serve it. And you know the story. Adam did not guard and serve the sanctuary. And so that that scene that should have become, been one of worship and blessing becomes a scene of cursing and separation. And, and, and it's as if the, the priest has been defiled and is cast out of the sanctuary. And in a very real sense, all of the historical narrative since that time the time of Genesis to where we are in, in the scriptures today has been about that estrangement between God and man. We've seen hints in, in Genesis and, and then Exodus. We see hints of how that can be resolved in the sacrificial system. We, we've seen Abraham making sacrifices and the other patriarchs. And, and so it, there, there's been a communication of a sense that, that somehow atonement has to be made, blood has to be shed for there to be a way into the presence of God. And now in Leviticus, we're taking another step forward. There in those first seven chapters of Leviticus, remember God, God's spoke to Moses, and he said, literally, this is how you draw near to me. This is how the congregation can draw near to me. They draw near to me with what they draw near with, literally is what the text says. They bring near that which is brought near, namely those sacrifices that we read about. Here's how you can, here's how you can be prepared to come into my presence sacrifices of purification because even this incredibly beautiful and ornate furniture and and sanctuary that you've created it's unclean it has to be purified by blood and, and sacrifices of of ascension of totally totally being consumed in smoke signifying a complete dedication to the Lord. Sacrifices of tribute, recognizing him as king. And so all those sacrifices were laid out in Leviticus 1 through 7, and we tried to look at some of the significance, the theological meanings behind those sacrifices. Then in chapter 8, we got into the narrative section, and we saw last the Lord's Day, Aaron and his sons ordained as priests. So now everything is in place. We have the sanctuary. We have the sacrifices. We have the cleansing of these unworthy sinners. Aaron and his sons probably involved in the worship of the golden calf. Now, now purification has been made. Okay, They've been ordained. Blood has been applied to them. And so they're ready. And now, at last, at last, Worship can happen. Worship can happen. And so in chapter 9, we are, as it were, witnesses to the inauguration of a particular worship liturgy that will go on 
for over a thousand years. So imagine you're there, one of those Israelites, to witness this incredible event. The word of the Lord, Leviticus chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. They handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the skin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the bird offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar, but the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breast, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from the offering, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and fell on their faces. What an incredible scene that is, isn't it? Because you begin to imagine yourself being there and, 
and watching this pageantry unfold before you, you notice the congregation is called here. Okay, that, that worship of the Lord is always about the congregation. That's, that's so important to keep in mind. Okay, worship isn't what happens up here in front. Okay, it's, it's, it's not something that happens while the congregation looks on. Do you see the distinction there? Worship is what the congregation does together. So, so it's, it's not just for show that the congregation is called here. They're indispensable. God had already promised them this back in Exodus. He, he had given them a promise. Okay? And he had said, this is why I called you out. Because I want to dwell with you. I want to live with you. That's the imagery of the meeting tent here, isn't it? It's a tent in the midst of tents, purposely surrounded by the tribes, not off to one side, but right in the center. God said, in the place that I name, in the place where I put my name, there I will live in your midst, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. You see how it's all about the congregation? The priests are important. They have a role. They've been ordained for a particular role. But worship doesn't happen just for them. I'm belaboring that some because we are in a Reformed tradition. We're in a congregational tradition which is based on this. The moment that we slip into thinking that worship is a spectator sport, we've lost it. We've lost it. We don't get together on a Sunday morning for a show, for a spectacle. We're distinct from the world in that. When you come as a congregation, the worship is happening in your hearts together. We could have music, I could preach, everything could look great, but if it's not happening in you, worship hasn't taken place. You are that important. That's why in our tradition, we've always placed such an importance on the gathering together for worship. We, we don't practice like other religions. Worship going on is like somewhere else. You know, we, we come by and we watch it now and then, but most of the time we're, we're off somewhere else. No, we believe worship happens in us, among us. And, and that's what's portrayed here, okay? It's all for the congregation that this is happening. What happens right at the end? 
It's the blessing on the congregation, right? That, that's what everything's leading up to. This is the blessing to counter the curse at the Garden of Eden. You see that? All of this worship, all of what happens here is so God can bless his people. Because when Aaron and then Moses and Aaron speak this benediction, they are speaking the words of God. That's why I like to use a piece of scripture for the benediction of our worship. Because I want you to have a sense of God speaking to you. That the last words you hear in the, in the congregational worship service is God speaking a blessing to you. So when Moses and Aaron come out, and they, they probably use that, that beautiful benediction that I use today, the Lord bless you and keep you from number six. You see what's happened. God has drawn his people to himself and blessed them. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that ultimately the deepest longing of our hearts? I mean, I, I, I know we, we want other things. We enjoy other things in life. That's good. God gives us good things to enjoy. But we know from experience, don't we, that those, those good things don't give lasting joy. Okay? That great meal... Well, it's history, okay? And our bodies need more food. That, that wonderful time we have with a friend, well, it's past, you know. And, you know, all, all the joys of this life, as good as they are, as wonderful as they are, they're fleeting. You're here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, old people like me know that in spades, okay? I know it's hard for some of you young people to, to, to catch that, but take my word for it, they, they're, they're not lasting. Again, I'm not saying we're not supposed to enjoy those things. It's gifts from God. We're to enjoy them fully. And in fact, I think that believers can enjoy the blessings of this life more fully than anyone else because they're not burdening them beyond what they can bear, okay? Marriage is a wonderful blessing, probably the, the greatest blessing, earthly blessing I've ever had. But I tell young people when I counsel them for marriage, do not expect this person to satisfy your deepest longings. Do not expect this person to be your joy to be your ultimate love, all those things that you see in the movies, okay? Because if you do, you will crush that person. They cannot bear that. And you will destroy 
your relationship. If you make them the center of your lives, only God is great enough. Only God is glorious enough. Only God is beautiful enough. Only God is giving enough. Only God is everything enough to be everything to you. And that's really what's being communicated here in this worship service, isn't it? And the Israelites watch this unfolding before them. They, they see these perfect specimens of animals brought, and they see the knife put to their throat, and the blood flow, and it's applied to the altar. And, and it seems to me that there would be a growing tension. Okay, sacrifice after sacrifice is being made. And you know, Moses has told you, God is going to appear before you. Literally, literally what it says there is, God will cause himself to be seen by you. So you're looking for something to happen, aren't you? This is the first time you've heard this promise given to you. It's not been said before. Somehow you're going to see Yahweh, see the Lord. The one who said to Moses, no man can see me and live. Remember on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai when Moses asked to see the face of the Lord, he said, no one can see me and live. No one can see me in my being, in my very essence and live. It's not possible. And yet you've heard Moses say, the Lord is going to cause himself to be seen by you. So there's a building tension as sacrifice after sacrifice is offered. And you see the smoke going up. The purification sacrifice is given. And the blood is applied to the altar. And then the ascending sacrifice is given. And then the peace or fellowship offerings are given. They're the these are the most costly ones, by the way. The, the bull, the ox, and the ram for peace offerings, that's like the most expensive peace offering you could give. It's obviously communicating the fact that fellowship is what this is about, ultimately. It's about coming into the presence of God. It's fellowship with God and with one another. So you've seen that happen. And then, all, uh, then they're, they're at the altar, which is somewhat elevated. Aaron turns around, probably. They're standing there at the altar still and blesses the people, speaks a benediction over them. And then he comes down. And now Moses and Aaron together go into the tent of meeting. And it's the first time anyone has done that. Moses, the great mediator and prophet figure. In a sense, priest as well. He's from the same tribe as his brother, obviously. He acted the role of priest in the ordination. And that, now that's, that priestly role is being handed over to Aaron. And so the two of them go in together into the tent of meeting. And perhaps you wait, if you're an Israelite there, with bated breath. Are they going to come out? The glory cloud of the presence of the Lord is there, you know. What if they 
are struck dead in their sin. Much to your relief, you see them come out. Together then, they bless you and the rest of the congregation. And you do see the glory of the Lord. As fire comes out from that glory cloud, it would appear this is what happens, fire comes out of that glory cloud and incinerates whatever is left on the altar in an instant. You've seen the glory of the Lord. What can you do but shout and fall on your face? God has been pleased to come to you to draw you into his presence. That's what the worship service is all about. Don't you wish you'd been there to see that, to experience that? Well, I want to tell you, as great a display of the glory of the God as you would have had as an Israelite standing there on this particular day. At this meeting house today, this meeting place, God's glory is more fully displayed. We don't offer sacrifices. There's no fire going to come out. But I'm telling you, You've seen something better if you have eyes of faith. The display found in the gospel, the good news in Christ Jesus, that's the fuller display. If you'll just hear with your ears, if you'll just hear it, you can see it, for it's, you're not a merely a physical entity, but God has given you the capacity to think He's given you a mind, and you can see, as Jesus would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We could say, he who has eyes to see inside, let him see the, the truth that was signified so long ago in the sacrificial blood that we see in our text and in this offering that was made. Christ is the purification sacrifice make worship possible here. Christ is the ascending sacrifice, totally giving himself over, taking upon himself the wrath of God, symbolized by that fire. Sinful man cannot come to God save through blood and fire. Christ has offered his blood, and he's borne the fire of the wrath of God in your place, and it's the perfect goodness of the Son of God that clothes you in robes of righteousness that, so that you can be united with him by faith. That's the greater glory, isn't it? The author of Hebrews speaks of this contrast. He begins his book, Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
like the scene that we've just read today. But in these last days, and the last days is anything after Jesus, okay? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Here is an infinitely greater display of the glory of God than fire coming out to consume sacrifices. Because he goes on to say, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, not some ceremonial purification that's going to work until the next time you have to have the service at the tabernacle. Not, not some temporary sacrifice that we'll do till the next day, because these sacrifices have to be offered daily in the Old Testament. But after having made full purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the writer of Hebrews says, pay attention. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How can you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? This is right here. That's what he's saying. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Covenant. He quotes from the Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little low, while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Well, when is that fulfilled? Was well, fulfilled in Jesus. Right? That... that that role that Adam abdicated, that he failed at, that we all fail at, Jesus fulfilled. He is the one who is made for a little while lower than the angels, and yet now is crowned with glory and honor, and everything is in subjection under his feet. Now be careful, he goes on to say, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in a world of suffering and pain. But we see him. Follow his argument here. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. How? Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Did you catch it? Did you see the path to glory that Jesus took? It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. For whom and all th and by whom all things exist. All of creation exists for him. All of creation is made for him, and yet what happened? In bringing many sons to glory, the founder of their salvation is made perfect. 
is made complete through suffering. Through suffering. Since the children, those he came to redeem, share in flesh and blood, they were human beings. He himself, that is, Jesus likewise, took, likewise partook of the same things. He became human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You want to know what life outside of Christ is? It's lifelong slavery. And it ends in death and hell. But Jesus is made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to turn away God's wrath by taking his wrath upon himself. For because he has suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, holy congregation, you who share in a heavenly calling, if you've heard the call of Jesus, consider him the apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He is the house's builder, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There's the glory that we see in worship today, far greater than that which the Israelites experienced. If you've seen that, God has given you eyes to see, everything is changed. Everything is changed. Your world is turned upside down. Well, be better to say, your world is turned right side up. So how do you share in the glory that Christ promises? Okay, you, you've, you've seen the glory of Christ, and, and you probably caught the writer of Hebrews saying there, that this Lord of glory is bringing many children to glory. That's you. How does that happen? What does that look like? Does it look like a life of prosperity and earthly fullness? No. Here's how to live. Here's how to experience that, that path to glory. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Listen for the imperatives here. Okay? This is for those who have seen God's glory in Christ. Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves. 
The world would not think that's a way to glory. <laughs> but the way down is the way up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Do you, do you, see, do you see what he's saying there? Humility is really realizing who you are and realizing who God is. I can be humble, you can be humble because you have a mighty God. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humble yourselves, believing that the God who is all-powerful will one day exalt you. Put your hope there, not in the present moment. That's not going to be easy. They're going to be the anxieties of this life. And what does he say? Casting all your anxieties on him. To walk in humility is, is to be tempted to anxiety, to worry. And, and Peter says, throw your anxieties on him. That's what, literally what he says. Throw your worries on him because he cares for you. That mighty God cares for you. So throw your worries on him, your anxieties on him. Now, don't just sit back and do nothing. Be sober-minded, he goes on to say. That's sort of an archaic expression today, perhaps. Literally, it's, he, he means have your wits about you. Okay, don't, don't be half asleep. Okay, be alert. Be watchful. Why? Because you've got enemies, and your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't run from him, but resist him, Peter says. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout all the world. Resist Satan knowing that your brothers and sisters are engaged in that same resistance. You're not alone. One of, the, one of the ways that Satan trips us up sometimes is we begin to think we're alone in our temptation. You're not alone. Others are, have gone through trial or going through trial just like you. You're not alone. Resist him. Firm in your faith. And after you have suffered a little while, suffering will come. Suffering will come. Christian faith is not an escape from suffering. It's not a denial of suffering like some religions practice. So Peter acknowledges, after you have suffered a little while, however long it is, is a little while in comparison to eternity. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, don't you love that? The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Temporary humility and suffering now, eternal glory there. That's a wonderful exchange, isn't it? And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, here's what he's going to do. Because it doesn't depend on you. 
is going to restore you. But literally, that word there means to make complete, to make whole. It's the word that is used in the Gospels when it talks about the fishermen mending their nets, restoring them. You ever feel like you need restoration? You need mending. God will do that. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will confirm you. He will, he will make you firm from the inside out. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. That word means to put on a foundation. He will put a foundation under your feet. God will do all that and bring you into his eternal glory. That's your calling as a congregation of God's people. Let's pray that he would enable us to do that. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that your word contains such wonderful promises. Help us, Lord, to embrace them. It's not easy to embrace humility. It's not easy to embrace resisting sin. But we believe the promise of your word that, that you care for us, that you're working in all things for your glory and our good, that you are constantly restoring and confirming and strengthening and establishing us as we depend upon you. Thank you for this promise, Lord, and help us to walk in it this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.